Where I have a problem is the idea of the tongue position. Because actually, if you want to get an ideal tongue position, then you don't want really to breathe in through the nose while you're singing you know, in between in between phrases, mm. because in order to breathe in through the nose, you're going to have to close something, which means you're going to have to move the tongue in some way. So if you're moving the tongue in some way for nasal breathing, that means whatever setup you've got there, which is lovely, you've just destroyed by breathing in. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Yes. Um, Whereas mm-hmm. if you breathe in through the mouth, you can actually hold the same tongue position while you're breathing and singing. Mm. You mm. don't have to change your vowel to breathe in. Although so I will say, so you're prepping a vowel shape. Yeah, mm. it's uh, what do they call it? Um, it's, it's sort of like co-articulation. Co-articulation. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It's where you preform something before mm-hmm. you actually do mm-hmm. it, and um, yeah, there's something about you can. I mean, sorry rewind because i had a thought while i was having a thought which is a very bizarre situation to be in um i have seen a lot of people when they breathe in they breathe in on a particular vowel and Mm. it doesn't matter what the vowel is that they just sung and it doesn't matter what the vowel is that they're going to sing they will then reform while they're breathing into a different vowel and people often breathe in on an which is an uh Mm. or which is an oh Mm. particularly if they want a deeper breath, mm. they'll go for a darker back vowel. Mm. And it's interesting if you've just sung um, the word um, key and then you go key and you mm. change the whole mass space and then you're going to sing another word which begins with I a vowel. I loved that audible sucking <laughs> in of air. Well done. <laughs> there's, I mean, in a way, there's a lot more to the whole breathing in mechanism than we think there is. This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr Gillian Kayes and Jeremy Fisher. This is A Voice. Hello and welcome to Series 3, Episode 4, And Breathe. I'm Jeremy Fisher. And I'm Dr Gillian Kayes. And we're doing part two of the breathe thing because the last episode was really popular. And watch out because in this podcast we get verbal about voice. We do. So, what are we talking about today? Well, we've had some interesting questions come up, actually, about breathing. And I thought maybe we'd start with some of these. Okay, great. And the first one is from Sally Martin-Brown, who is on our uh, teacher accreditation training course. And she's a choir trainer as well as a singer. And her question is, which is best, breathing through the nose or the mouth? Oh, okay. Well, that's the that's the one question that we're going to be dealing with for the next three hours because yeah. this is such a big topic. And she had a um, specific reason for asking it. Um, there's a, a relatively new book out uh, by an author called James Nestor, and I've forgotten what the title of it is: "The Lost it's, Art of Breathing." It's called "Breath: The New Signs of a Lost Art." Ah, thank you. I'm glad somebody did their research there. And she said she found some of it very interesting. And so what she'd started doing was experimenting with her choral singers and asking them to breathe in through the nose sometimes instead of through the mouth. And she found that there was a beneficial effect. So I think the first thing I'm going to say in terms of practical investigation was I went off down a rabbit hole as soon as I saw this question. Mm -hmm. There I was humming around the house um, and humming on an M so that I deliberately I couldn't open my mouth mm-hmm. and doing little vocal exercises with that, you know, just little kind of repeated note exercises. And then following it up by singing the same exercise on a vowel. Mm. And what I found was that it was quite efficient in sort of conditioning vocal fold behavior, you know, at, at the beginning of the day, getting the vocal folds closing nicely. So I felt that there was a coordination between the vocal folds and the breath going on and that maybe something about using the nasal breathing to begin with helped me regulate that. Okay, that's a really interesting thought. I want to, before we go any further on this, because this is a real rabbit hole that we could go down, I just want to backtrack and go, let's talk about the difference between oral and nasal breathing and what we're actually talking about. So, I mean, it sounds obvious. Uh, With oral breathing, your mouth is open, you are breathing in through your mouth, and the air goes straight down into your lungs. And with nasal breathing, 
Your mouth can be open or closed, but the idea is that the, the air goes in through the nose. And, and um, we're going to talk about why that may or may not be useful, because in certain circumstances it is useful, in certain ones it isn't. But the, the interesting thing for me is when people talk about nasal breathing, they assume that the mouth is closed. And it um, doesn't mm, have to be. No, absolutely not. For instance, if you just position your tongue onto the roof of the mouth behind mm-hmm. the front teeth, as if you're about to say, mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's a nasal consonant. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to close your mouth. Well, there are, there are three nasal consonants in the English language where... Uh, now, hang on, I'm going to rewind on that. There are two nasal consonants in the English language where your lips are open but no air is escaping either in or out of your mm-hmm. mouth, and that's the N and the NG. Mm-hmm. And with the N, it, the tongue is exactly where you said it is, which is up on the roof of the mouth behind the alveolar ridge. And with the NG, the back of the tongue has risen and the soft palate has come back down. So actually the blockage, if you like, is at the back of your mouth. And it's the way that we can tell whether you're doing an M, an N, or an NG, because they all block the mouth exit in some way, but they block it in different places. Now, there's something else that I found out that was interesting about nasal breathing, and it is to do with the positioning of the tongue. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know, maybe it's something that we don't think about in a conscious way, but the tongue is actually resting up on the roof of the mouth mm-hmm. in most cases of people with nasal breathing. And this is thought to have beneficial effects, which we'll go on to later. Mm. So that was my sort of first experiment um, in answer to Sally's question, which is it could be useful, I think, for particularly helping avocational singers to balance their pressure flow relationships. Because by doing the nasal breathing, maybe they're taking less air in in the beginning. And um, then particularly when you're singing on a hum, which was what I chose to do to experiment, then you're kind of adjusting that pressure and flow relationship because there's a smaller outlet through the nose. <clears throat> Dear listeners, I wish I could show you the eye roll that Jeremy I'm, is performing I'm, right now. I've done a, a series of eye rolls for a couple of minutes uh, only because it's not a, not anything Gillian is saying is is incorrect, but it's interesting that we assume. And what I want to know is, is the input of air through the mouth does it create a different pressure from the input of air through the nose? And so I'm looking at the physiology and going, yes, actually it might. Because if you think about the the width that you can open the jaw and the width that you can open the lips and therefore the size of the tube that you're actually breathing in and out of, that is much bigger than the width of the nasal cavities and the nasal, um, what do they call them? Conchi, the nasal conchi. Uh, we all have six nasal conchi unless we don't. So the nasal conchi are passages that are, I think I've got this right, we can always cut this out if I haven't got this right, but uh, they are the passages, and we have three on each side, three per nostril, um, that take the air up and down into the throat. Now, I have a nice factoid. Go on. And this is from the article from uh, Nursing in General Practice, and we'll put the references at the end. Yep. With you talking about pressure and flow yes. and with my experiment. Yes. Nose breathing imposes approximately 50% more resistance to the airstream as compared to mouth breathing. There you go. This results in 10 to 20% more oxygen uptake. Oh, that's interesting. That's why everybody is banging on quite rightly about the importance of nasal breathing in everyday life, nasal breathing during sleep, sort of a prevention of sleep apnea, etc. And nasal breathing, as we go on to it later, uh, as a way of calming the sympathetic system. Okay. So, you know, maybe there's something in that. There's a lot of pluses there. There are a lot of pluses in there. Because that doesn't mean that you know, in mainstream singing where we have to sing long phrases according to certain musical patterns, etc., that we're always going to have time to breathe in through the nose. Yeah, I want to talk about timing later, but I want to come back mm. to, I mean, we were talking when we were when we were sort of building what we were going to talk about today, uh, we were talking earlier about the idea that people might be mixing up physiology, um, breathing for health, uh, breathing for sound 
uh, yoga breathing. There's a lot of different breathing things. Yeah, breathing and they for ha- sort of mindfulness, relaxation, meditative breathing. Yeah, yeah. That um, that we have that breathing has different functions. Well, it has. In that respect. Yeah, it has different functions. It also has different desired outcomes. Mm, mm. And um, people can become completely obsessed with one of those fu- uh, desired outcomes or functions and then attempt to uh, to uh, you know I uh, can't speak english today um what was i doing people can get very tied up with one of those functions or one of those um outcomes and then attempt to put it across the board so they're they're applying it as a hard and fast rule yep so for example this morning when we were talking about this i said to you that in yoga, we always breathe through the nose. Yes. And in yoga, often um, ujjayi breathing is encouraged, which is noisy breathing. Noisy breathing, yeah. yes. Uh, I certainly wouldn't recommend that to singers because it tends to um, bring the false vocal folds slightly closer together, which is something that we don't want. But I think it, it – I'm not sure why it's used. I think it's partly a control thing for doing controlled movements. Mm-hmm. And it could also be that there's something about the noise that helps people to control as well. I don't know, but I don't use it, and my yoga teacher knows that I don't use it. Um, But also it prompted me to say that uh, if I'm meditating, and I do transcendental meditation, and I do it every day, I've been doing it for well over 30 years, I can't get down if my nose is blocked and I uh, can't breathe through my nose. Mm. I simply cannot get into a meditative state. Mm. And um, sort of as I went down this nasal breathing rabbit hole, if you'll pardon the expression, one of the things that I found out about the benefits of nasal breathing is that it promotes the activity of the parasympathetic nervous system. That's the rest and digest system. So it calms and relaxes the body slows the breathing and the heart and promotes digestion. So that's a real well-being thing, it's isn't it? It's an absolute uh, super-duper well-being thing. And conversely, I found out that when we breathe in, we tend to activate the sympathetic system. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, both are going on sort of 24,500 times a day. Um, but that what tends to happen with the mouth breathing, I think if we're breathing through the mouth in everyday life, I suspect we're slightly over breathing and overusing the. Well, it sounds like you're not getting the as, sympathetic. I mean, obviously, you're getting oxygen into your lungs and and uh, there's exchange and all of that stuff. But it sounds like that there are certain things that you're not getting unless you breathe in through the nose. Yeah, I mean, this is something else that came up from this article, which was talking about. Um, nitric oxide, mm-hmm. which apparently when we're doing nasal breathing, uh, we can, I think, transfer the nitric os- oxide into the body. Okay. And what that does, it's uh, apparently it's a potent bronchodilator and vasodilator. Okay. So what it's doing is that it's, it's going to be... Um, it's opening your passages. Dilating the passages so we're going to get more oxygen into the lungs and vasodilation is actually going to calm the um the the blood system the blood pressure system so people who are habitual mouth breathers Me. might yeah might have a higher tendency to higher blood pressure mm-hmm. so hypertension which as it happens i don't have but yeah that's yeah. really interesting Okay, so we're talking about general everyday well-being. Yes. And actually general everyday breathing and every night breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, I completely see the sense of that. Mm. Where I have a small issue is when we're talking about singing. Mm. And we did talk about this in the previous uh, podcast, in the previous episode, because when you are singing, the rhythm that you breathe in has changed from mm. ordinary mm. ordinary passive breathing is approximately equal in, equal out, give or take a little bit. Uh, the breathing for speaking is you breathe in faster and you extend the outflow more. The breathing for singing is even more exaggerated. So you breathe in a lot faster and you extend a lot the out-breath a lot further. Mm. And that obviously depends on what music style you're singing and what genre you're singing in. But in general... The timing for your in-breath is dictated by the composer, Mm. and therefore it's been chosen for you. It's the only, of those three things, it's the only one where you don't get to choose when you breathe. 
give or take. Mm. Mm. So I'm having an, a, an issue about breathing in timing. Because I, I don't agree. think it is mm-hmm. possible. I mean, partly, partly I'm a mouth breather because I have very, very narrow conchi, very mm-hmm. narrow nasal passages. When we're doing, um, when I'm under endoscopy or stroboscopy, there is in fact only one of the six passages that they can get a camera up. Now that was a few years ago and the cameras may have got smaller. TMI, Jeremy. <laughs> Never TMI. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting one. So I, it is impossible for me to take in and also remember, I'm I'm an ex-oboist, mm. so I used to do a lot of long phrases and um, musical stuff. And it's impossible for me to take in the amount of air that I need for a very long phrase if I breathe nasally. Mm. I just cannot get it in fast enough or deep enough. Mm. But I think one of the things that Sally was talking about when, when uh, she was writing to us about this question, and she was talking about... Uh, let's say a Bach cantata where sometimes you have very little space to breathe and he doesn't write well for singers. He thinks they're all violinists and they can carry on forever. Um, but often there will be a big instrumental section where you do have the time to, to slow breathe in and that's the time to use the nasal breathing in a song. When you're talking about, you know, snatching a breath in the middle of a sentence or in the middle of a run or in the middle of a word or however that works... I'm not sure that a nasal breath can be either fast enough or silent enough mm-hmm. to work musically. Mm-hmm. And from that point of view, I would always encourage mouth breathing while you're actually singing. And maybe um, something to explore with uh, choral singers, avocational singers and any students is doing some humming exercises where people deliberately breathe in through the nose just as an experiment, mm-hmm. maybe almost as a kind of conditioning exercise. And then repeating the exercise on vowels and noticing whether your student is kind of gasping and pulling the air in with the mouth and with the mouth, um, you know, wide open. Just have the mouth a little bit open. It's also worth exploring singing on an NG where the mouth is open, but you're using nasal breathing. Mm-hmm. You know, there are reasons, I think, why we've been using these um, NG, M and N exercises for centuries as singing teachers. And, you know, maybe we thought it was to do with feeling vibration, which obviously it is, and therefore to do with resonance. But now there's a bit of me thinking, hmm, well, maybe it was actually about getting the tongue into a good position and, um, you know, improving that glottal closure from the above point, there's another eye roll going on. In fact, another three performed in quick succession. Well, I'm just putting I'm a, it out there. I'm agreeing. I am agreeing with the idea that because essentially this is like your own personal SOVT mm. where you can actually alter the pressure just by either breathing in through the nose or breathing in through the mouth. And that's an instant pressure change from above. So I'm actually going with the idea that it's possible that nasal breathing will change, nasal breathing in will change the pressure above the vocal folds, although obviously they wouldn't be vibrating. So maybe that's not the case. Um, Where I have a problem is the idea of the tongue position. Because actually, if you want to get an ideal tongue position, then you don't want really to breathe in through the nose while you're singing you know, in between in between phrases, mm. because in order to breathe in through the nose, you're going to have to close something, which means you're going to have to move the tongue in some way. So if you're moving the tongue in some way for nasal breathing, that means whatever setup you've got there, which is lovely, you've just destroyed by breathing in. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Yes. Um, Whereas mm-hmm. if you breathe in through the mouth, you can actually hold the same tongue position while you're breathing and singing. Mm. You don't have to change your vowel to breathe in. Although I so will you're say, prepping a vowel shape. Yeah, mm. it's uh, what do they call it? Um, it's, it's sort of like co-articulation. Co-articulation, mm-hmm. thank you. It's where you preform something before mm-hmm. you actually do mm-hmm. it. And um, yeah, there's something about you can. I mean, sorry, rewind because I had a thought while I was having a thought, which is a very bizarre situation to be in. Um, I have seen a lot of people when they breathe in, they breathe in on a particular vowel. And Mm. it doesn't matter what the vowel is that they just sung and it doesn't matter what the vowel is that they're going to sing. They will then reform while they're breathing into a different vowel. And people often breathe in on an, which is an uh, Mm. or which is an ah. 
particularly if they want a deeper breath. Mm. They'll go for a darker back vowel. Mm. And it's interesting if you've just sung um, the word um, key, and then you go key, and you mm. change the whole mass space, and then you're going to sing another word, which begins with I a vowel. I loved that audible sucking <laughs> in of air. Well done. <laughs> There's, I mean, in a way, there's a lot more to the whole breathing in mechanism than we think there is. I think that's right. Um, while we're on the subject of, of nose breathing and talking about nose breathing for general health, hmm. there are other factors that we could take into account. For instance, people who are habitual mouth breathers. Let's have a look at the disadvantages of mouth breathing from this article. Remember, this is not about singing. Yeah, I, I I read this list and I went, yes, there's a couple of those on there that I know about. Uh, chronic mouth breathing may contribute to chronic overbreathing. Mm-hmm. And obviously, this is something that you see with people who have a lot of um, respiratory infections, people who suffer from asthma, people from uh, who um, chronic obstructive Pulmonary disorder. Pulmonary disorder, COPD, probably people with long COVID, people with heart conditions. I speak for myself that I've noticed I am often breathing through my mouth these days when I don't need to. I'm having to consciously reset that. I'm only putting the kettle on. I do not need to breathe through my mouth. So chronic overbreathing, more likelihood of snoring and sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. Bad breath, apparently. Mm-hmm. Dysfunction of the jaw joint. Okay. Yeah. Now, narrowing of the dental arch, jaw and palate. Mm-hmm. And this is something that dentists talk about. If children who've had problems with their tonsils, um, uh, enlarged adenoids, etc., um, become mouth breathers during childhood, that suddenly you get this um, deformation, if you like, of the, the dental plate. Mm-hmm. And th- that can be quite an issue. Yeah. Um, dysfunction of the muscles around the jaw and lips, loss of lip tone. Not guilty. Yeah, noisy eating. (laughs) (laughs) I would say as well that something I've noticed, and this came from the work of um, slightly maverick vocal practitioner, the late Angela Kane, Mm. who worked with one of my own students, and he and I had quite a long discussion Uh, about her work. And what she found was that if people had grown up as chronic nose, uh, chronic mouth breathers, they actually had weak tongue muscles, in particular, the muscles that are raising the tongue. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about the whole larynx, you know, and all the multiple connections to the hyoid, and how the tongue is connected to that. And the, the tongue, tongue, tongue is essentially mobile. sits on the larynx, yeah. on the hyoid bone. So if we want to have a balanced system there, it's not about the muscles not doing anything. It's about the muscles working in harmony. Yeah. So if the muscles that are raising the tongue are weak, mm-hmm. then you're going to have problems. Mm. Also, those people have difficulty with their um, nasal oral competence. So that if you're constantly breathing through your mouth, your soft palate is in more of the raised position. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have difficulty um, using the nasal consonants. So there could be problems with your speech. Okay. Yeah. And I've also found with those people, there's difficulty with um, building up the intraoral pressure for some of the plosive consonants. Okay. Interesting. Um, I would also imagine that you might get swallowing difficulties as well. Yeah, they say that. And, you know, I don't know if you remember, but a while back when we did quite a lot of teaching in Spain, mm-hmm. we had a few students in Barcelona who had difficulties with articulation. And granted, they were singing in a foreign language, but they had that those issues also in Catalan and, and um, Castilian. Mm-hmm. And so I started using some of Angela Kane's exercises, tongue clicking, which um, uh, Ron Morris also recommends. Tongue clicking where you kind of make a suction between the tongue and the roof of the mouth. Mm -hmm. And we've written about that, haven't we, in Mm -hmm. um, This Is A Voice. Yes. So that's going to activate the muscles that raise the tongue. So playing around with that, I did soft palate exercises as well. Um, 
I also had them kind of holding their jaw into just a, a very stable position, not very open, and um, using the tongue clicking there, humming and doing nasal breathing. Okay, neat. Yeah. 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 So you're, you're actually separating tongue actions as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the other thing, which is great fun, I don't know if you heard me practicing it earlier, singing while brushing your teeth so that you have to move the tongue around. Mm -hmm. Neat. And I gave a series of those exercises as well as voiced plosive. So I would do a nasal consonant followed by a voiced plosive. So to facilitate um, opening the nasal port, closing the nasal port. And they had to do these, you know, se several times a day, five minutes, three times a day, working in front of a mirror. And it massively improved their artic articulation and their vocal fold tone, for want mm. of a better word. That's amazing. There's a, yeah. there's a couple of myths that I just want to bust for a moment before mm. we move on to the next question, um, which is uh, the nose is open, the nose is closed. The door is open, the door is closed. Well, no, there's actually quite a lot of um, interims in there. So it's the idea that when you breathe in through your mouth that your nose is closed and nothing's going in. Not necessarily, not unless you check it. You could do both. You can do both. And you can vocalise with both. Yes. So that's the first one. And the second one, and this is so prevalent, or certainly has been in classical singing even in my lifetime, when you breathe in through your nose, you are raising the soft palate. No. <laughs> Absolutely the opposite. I cannot tell you the number of times I've had people say, but... Um, I'm doing that to activate the soft palate. When you breathe in through... raise the soft palate. Yeah, when you breathe in through your nose, you are lowering the soft palate in order to allow the air in. And you're bringing the tongue up towards the soft palate yeah. at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, no, this, this does not happen. It doesn't happen that you raise the soft palate when you breathe in through your nose. It is, you wouldn't be able to breathe in through your nose if you... If you did. The soft palate, you know, Jeremy, it, uh, so maybe we'll do a whole uh, podcast about it at some point. Apparently it's responsible for so many things in singing. <laughs> um, I want to say a little bit more about breathing for well-being, if I may. Yeah, of course. If I may share something. Um, I mentioned earlier that I had done some work to reset my own breathing pattern because of having developed a heart condition. And like a lot of people who have either heart or lung conditions, you know, we start to get anxious about our breathing mm -hmm. and therefore we tend to overbreathe. And I noticed that I was, I changed my breathing pattern and I felt it was affecting my anxiety levels. And I also thought it was affecting my voice use. And mm. I think I was right about that. So I got in touch with Anne Coxhead, who is um, an osteopath and a laryngeal manipulator, who is uh, a recommended practitioner by BAPAM. Mm -hmm. And she um, did some breath work with me, which I have found incredibly beneficial. And I can absolutely attest to doing the right sort of regulated nose breathing as um, helping to get the parasympathetic to balance the sympathetic nervous system such that I will happily go to the brink of sleep and I also find it's very good for my digestion. So I had a quick text message with her today. I don't know if you know this. No. Yeah, and I said, you know, um, what is it that you do? And, and um, you know, can you just say a few things. So she uses a number of different breathing techniques, one of which is called the two to one ratio. And that is to um, address the sympathetic nervous system mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, get it to switch off. She also uses coherent breathing. So that would be three, three, four, four mm -hmm. in and out, which I also do. She uses box breathing with holding um, to correct the balance of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the body. And box breathing I have heard of. Yeah, square breathing. It's also square called breathing. lots of people do that. Um, it's recommended by people like Stephen Porges, I think, you know, the author of the um, polyvagal theory. So lots of people talk about that. And box breathing, if I remember rightly, is breathe in, 
to to a count. Yes. Hold for the same number. Mm-hmm. Breathe out for the same number. Hold for the same number. Yeah. That's why you get the four square. Mm. And lots of people recommend that. Personally, I don't like it. I prefer the coherent. And, and you know what she said that if working with breath patterns teaches ownership of your autonomic nervous system. Because, of course, the key is in the word autonomic. We aren't in control. Of I was just going to go there. That cortisol being released as we get wound up. We, you know, we can't control our blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And yet, if we can get into these relaxed states, we can counter the sympathetic system. Okay, so it's a byproduct. Yes. The byproduct is to be able to change it. Uh, I was just going to get into the whole breathing thing. You know, there are people who say you can't control your breathing. And I'm going, really? Because you can. Well, it's under conscious and non-conscious control. Well, that's the point. It's under both. It's Mm -hmm. under unconscious control, otherwise you die in your sleep. Mm. And it's under conscious control because we want to take a breath when we're communicating in almost any way we want to take a breath when we're communicating and even the way that you take the breath is going to inform what then happens oh let's play a game Mm -hmm. no 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 now you do some either with a no or a yes (laughs) Okay, I'll do I the, don't know if people can hear that. <laughs> I'll do the no. 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 <laughs> I love that one. Everybody, there was another eye roll performed there. No. No. Yeah. So interesting. Mm-hmm. And... Um, That takes me to the idea, I know we've got more questions, about we breathe to communicate the thought of the phrase. Mm -hmm. And this is very much um, embedded in spoken voice work, the work of Kristen Linklater Mm -hmm. and and others. So breath is the intention. And uh, I was scrolling on Instagram this morning and I saw this fabulous quote from the opera singer Thomas Hampson. Mm -hmm. A breath is a not yet heard thought in the language of music. Mm, Love that. Isn't that gorgeous? So obviously you're breathing in with the intent and the emotion of the phrase. And that was quoted by uh, Total Vocal Freedom, who are doing a week on um, interviews and chats on breath work. Neat. So we have some more questions. We're in the zeitgeist. Yeah. We have some more questions, um, and I'm just going to play. Uh, Franca has actually sent sent two questions. Franca is on our accreditation program as well, mm. and I want to play question one. Oh, this is my chance to pop in a question. We have been talking a little bit already in our group sessions about inalare la voce, but I would like to know your definition of inalare la voce, and I would like to know if you would see this only as a breathing thing, um, as in keeping the breath away, basically. Um, or is inalara la voce a combination of a breathing thing in, in combination with um, a resonance setting? Because I feel that this might be the case as well. So just wondering what your thoughts are about this. Marvellous. Okay, let me just unpack the question. Inhalare la voce. Inhale the voice. This is a big thing in uh, classical singing world and particularly 19th century opera, actually, but 19th century style music in general. And it literally means inhale your voice. Uh, And the implication of that is that you sing while you inhale, but in fact you don't. There are techniques, and particularly 20th and 21st century singing, where you inhale while you sing, but this isn't one of them. Absolutely. I don't think it means that you um, inhale while singing. (laughs) No. It's, It's... it's the voice. It's that you don't blow air at it. That's how I've always understood it. You don't don't blow, blow air at your vocal folds. Okay. I think that this refers to a feeling. Mm. 
So the feeling is it's almost like, although you are singing on an exhalation, it's almost like you are drinking in the sound, because that is another phrase that comes up a lot. It's like the sound is not uh, leaving you with force. It's almost the feeling is that it comes back in the moment that you have um, produced it. Which is a very weird thing. It's a sort of feel-flow thing. And I know that um, Franca's is such a really interesting question because she's saying, is it just the breathing mechanism that we're talking about and, and to do with that? Or is it a resonance thing as well? And I'm thinking that it's a breathing thing and possibly a vocal fold thing, but I'm not sure about a resonance thing. And the only reason that it might be is that when teachers, singing teachers, uh, that certainly that I've worked with, and I've worked with a lot, when they talk about inhalare the vo- la voce, they will often demonstrate. And therefore, they are producing an entire sound output in order to demonstrate to the pupil what they want. And I think that people will often try to imitate the sound of it. Mm. Whereas it is, in fact, in my head, it's a technique, which is uh, you hold the airflow back so that you're feeding a very fine stream of air. And therefore, you're controlling the airflow, and you're also controlling the vocal fold activity. And it doesn't matter to me whether you are in a modal or a falsetto, whether you're in an M1 or an M2, Mm. you are still controlling the airflow to whatever the vocal folds need and that musical phrase needs. So I'm going to go with it's a breathing thing and it's a vocal fold thing, but I'm not sure about a resonance thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep, and I have nothing more to say on that. And it's quite interesting. Oh, I have lots. I have lots to say on Inhalare La Voce because it is there is a desired outcome, which is fine control of the sound and the phrasing and the volume and the phrase shape. That's the outcome. That's the that's the desired goal. I think to do it, you take in a fair amount of air, usually quite fast, and then you hold quite a lot of that air back. So you are in fact balancing your expiratory muscles and your inspiratory muscles, so mm-hmm. that it doesn't all disappear in one go. Ah, so that that could be one of those moments when the diaphragm is engaged. Yes. As you start to breathe out. So in that sense, you are inhalare la voce. Mm, no, because if you were inhalaring la voce, the air would be going inwards and it's not, it's going outwards. Yeah. But then call me Mr. Literal. Yeah. Um, but what you are doing is you're continuing to activate the diaphragm instead mm. of releasing it. Mm-hmm. You're continuing to activate the diaphragm so it doesn't then mm. go into the breathe mm. out thing. Or you're continuing to activate it partly because you are breathing out. I know when, you know, I've sort of tried this out with students or I've been aiming for that, um, what I think of the sound outcome of that technique, Mm. which I probably wouldn't need to do much with students now because I don't work in the classical style much. But the students have said, but how am I making the sound? I feel like I'm not breathing. Mm -hmm. It's a very fine balance. And it, it really does feel like the air stands still. Yeah. Yeah. It isn't because you're making a sound and mm. it's impossible to make a sound without airflow mm. in that circumstance. But the airflow is so fine and so balanced and you're not pumping and you're not letting a lot of air out and the sound is almost always really clean and focused. So it's it's like the outcome of the hover breath that we talk about in um this is a voice. It is a continuation and of the hover breath. And using a series of those and, yes. and yeah, okay, that's yeah. neat. So that's my take. Yeah, I think I think that's mine too. Yeah, and okay. in fact, um, both men and women use it. Sure. So, and interestingly, men will um, classical men and will use it in M one. The countertenors will use it in M two. Um, classical females will use it in M2. They tend to use it a bit less in M one because we women only tend to sing in M one in the lower range. So, but it's it's really useful in M two because you are controlling the airflow. Mm. Uh, up to the vocal folds, and the vocal folds are less dense in M2. The, you know, the muscle is switched off. So therefore, it's going to be easier to blow your vocal folds apart. And one of the ways that you can get that really fine adducted falsetto is to control the airflow and hold it back. Okay, interesting. I've not thought of it as being, well, it's not a function of mechanism, but it may be more useful in one than another. Mm. That's what we're saying, isn't mm. it? Okay. So I'm going with that. Didn't Franca send another question in? Mm, she did. 
Um, I'm going to summarise some of it because it's it's quite long. Um, but she's talking about uh, a student she's working with and their belly stomach area often feels tight and sometimes painful. Uh, I feel tension in the upper area too. I think it's my diaphragm, is what the student said. So uh, Franca's overall question was, is it possible for someone to have a chronic tensed diaphragm? Uh, and I should say as well that other information we have about this student is that they have uh, gastric problems. Okay, that's important. And I think important. that's quite significant. Mm. So um, what I was thinking is, first of all, does the student experience this on the in-breath or the out-breath during singing or not? So in other words, singing as opposed to speaking. Okay, so you're exploring. Yeah, so do some explorations. And then I think where I would go would be for checking for sort of holding on in the epigastrium region. Okay, you're going to have to tell me where the epigastrium region is. Okay, right. So when we're breathing and the diaphragm contracts and flattens and pulls the air in to the lungs, etc., it displaces the viscera. Underneath it. Yeah, and produces an outward movement of your upper abdominal region, and that's called the epigastrium. That's the epigastric region. Okay, so that's basically if you run your fingers down your breastbone to the bottom, which is the xiphoid process, Mm. that's that's where the diaphragm um, is connected underneath. And everything from there down is the epigastric region. Not no, it's not very far down. Oh, not very far no, down. No, no, it's, okay. it's in the upper part of the um, of the abdominal region. Great. So, I mean, it's not a muscle and it's not an organ, mm-hmm. and this is quite important because I hear people talking about the epigastrium as if it's um, either one of those. But it's um, it's described here. It's a, a nice little um, entry on Wikipedia. It's a zone of activity where the actions of the rectus abdominis and the diaphragm produce an outward bulging of the upper abdominal, upper abdominal wall. So when you breathe in and you see that little bit of bulging in the upper abdominal wall, that is the epigastrium. Okay. Okay. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an area. It's a region. Yes. It's not a thing. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to think about, you know, you, you can go onto the internet and do a Google search on the regions of the, of the abdomen and I think there are eight of them okay. and various organs and bits and bobs um, in different regions. And it, I found it quite interesting. That was another rabbit hole today. So um, what I would be doing, I would be asking her to let the upper abdominal region soften during the outbreath. So that if you're activating the outbreath, you know, at the base of the transverse, which is what we suggest... Um, using something like the accent method. Okay, keep talking and then I want to translate. Yeah, okay. And then you I'd sort of allow a ripple movement upwards so that you're slightly softening and pulling in higher up. And I think this is something to check because some people, particularly if they have gastric problems, they will move the lower abdomen in order to activate the um, the expiration but it kind of gets stuck and held higher up. Now, we're not using breath down there. What we're doing is we're using the muscles of expiration to assist with the out-breath. But if what we do is we hold in that epigastrium region, then in fact that's not going to happen very efficiently. That's interesting. I actually discovered this several years ago. I noticed that you know stuff was moving on my abdominal wall when I was breathing out. And I noticed that I had, it was almost like I had two zones. I had Mm -hmm. a zone from the navel downwards, and then I had a zone that was just underneath the xiphoid process and that slightly upper area of the abdominal wall. It's the basement and the first floor. Right. And what was happening, because I'm an ex-oboist, and we were Mm -hmm. taught to push down Mm -hmm. to support. Um, So what was happening was that I was actually able to to move the the belly button but I had this area just underneath the bottom mm-hmm. of the breastbone that basically stayed there. And I was quite happily pumping away. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, oh, the, hang on, I can do a ripple movement. Mm-hmm. So I can move the bottom one first and then move the top one in. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, what happens if I don't move the bottom one and I move the top one in? And so there, you know, I often do this. I go over on a what can I do and what if. But I think what you're talking about is 
you take a deep breath in. Mm. So you've expanded around that front abdominal area. Mm-hmm. And then as you start to finage, you can start to gently push in the lower, sorry, pull in the lower part mm-hmm. around the uh, belly button and below. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's a great place to be aware of because that's where everything. all the muscles sort of meet. Yep. Um, we went into that a bit more in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you can start to ripple upwards and to pull in the area that is slightly higher. Mm. And that gives you a very different feel. Mm. And it was interesting you were saying soften, and I agree with it. It doesn't feel like you're actually softening when I do it. It feels like I'm just allowing it to be pulled in rather yeah. than just being rigid. Yeah, um, that I'll say to my students to ripple, to mm. let it ripple up. Mm. Uh, because, you know, they're working really hard. And in fact, the, you know, it's, yes. it, it's not functioning. I found this happens with brass players, pe- particularly people who read instruments, yep. saxophonists. Yes. Yeah, because high stuff. wind players are taught that support is bearing downwards, mm, mm. down and out. So, um, Franca, that would be my advice for that student. And let us know on our circle community mm. how you get on with it. Mm. Okay, that was fun. Um, we have a question from Jan. We did. Jan, Jan has sent one in. This is a really interesting one. Hi, Julianne and Jeremy. This is Jan. I wondered if you could clarify the difference between subglottal pressure and lung pressure and how they interact. Thank you. I love it when somebody comes up with a single sentence and you go, well, that's going to take some unpacking, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we'll do our best. Um, When we're, I'll just sort of see if I can summarise in a a way that's based on science but isn't scientific in terms of pressure, which was a lovely idea that I got from our um, associate trainer, Anne. Anne Leatherland, yes. Which is think about somebody treading on your foot with a nice flat shoe. Yeah. And therefore the pressure is spread over quite a broad surface area. Yeah. And then unfortunately they tread on your foot. It's the same person, it's the same weight. Same pressure. With stiletto heels. Yep. And it's going to cut through your skin, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Okay. So because of that smaller surface area, the pressure is higher. Okay. Um, That's something important to remember when we're talking about lung pressure, isn't it? Yeah. This is my take on this, Jan, and I'm hoping this is going to make sense. If Because in a way, you can experience it yourself. If you take a large breath in, And then you keep your vocal folds open. So you could breathe out or sing or do whatever at any point, but you hover your breath. You have quite high lung pressure because your lungs are filled with air and they're expanded. But you have zero subglottal pressure because the air isn't moving and the vocal folds aren't closed. So at that point, there is no interaction between the subglottal pressure and the lung pressure. And I just want to break down subglottal pressure. It literally means the pressure that is directly underneath the vocal folds. It doesn't go down any further. Any further is going to be one of the causes of the subglottal pressure. But subglottal pressure is directly beneath the vocal folds. Mm -hmm. And it's a combination of how much the vocal folds are resisting and how much air and uh, air speed, air flow, air volume is coming up from underneath. Mm. And, I mean, there's been lots and lots of scientific research into this. It can be measured directly by um, popping a tube in through the trachea. Doubly. Yeah. So that's That's an incision into your throat. Yeah, it's a direct measurement. Yes, it has been done. Wow. So it's measured indirectly. It's actually measured with a mask Mm -hmm. uh, from using the syllable pa. So obviously the lips are closed on the pa, so nothing is released. Nothing can be measured. Mm -hmm. And as you go into the a, you keep the vowel stable. Dependent on what you're doing at vocal fold level, more air will be um, measurable at the lips or less air. Mm -hmm. So if you're producing a breathy sound, you're going to get a higher airflow coming into the mask. If you're producing a clear sound, you're going to get um, less airflow. If you're using a pressed sound, you're going to get even less airflow. Mm -hmm. And um, that, in summary, is how it works. Excellent. Well done. Okay. So, what is the difference between lung pressure and subglottal pressure? Subglottal pressure can only exist when the vocal folds are vibrating 
and there is air passing through them. Uh, lung pressure can exist at any point. Yes, that makes sense. So they are entirely separate, but they do interact. Um, interestingly, you can have lung pressure and then you can release the lung pressure, but if the vocal folds are open and the air is just coming out noiselessly, there is still no subglottal pressure. Sub for subglottal pressure to occur, the vocal folds have to be either vibrating or closed. Yes. I think that answers the question. <laughs> I hope so. It should And do. I hope we got that right as well, because mm. it makes complete sense in my head. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if anybody disagrees with that and can, can tell me why, please do let us know. Okay. Uh, we have an, we have a third question, actually. F we have a third question from Frank, which I thought was really interesting, and I want to go here. Do you? I do. Okay. And my second question is about breathing in different pedagogy views. Sometimes breathing is considered a thing that will follow according to the task you would like to do in your singing. So... That would basically mean that the vocal folds do something and then the breath will just come along. Or are we supposed to change our breathing pattern as well in order to make those vocal folds do what, they're, what we want them to do? I would find it interesting if you guys could shine some light on that. Okay, thank you. Well, it's an excellent question. It is a very good question. Um, just referring back to the idea of measuring subglottal pressure mm -hmm. and the multiple studies that have been done on that. For me, you know, um, Sundberg has identified uh, flow phonation, pressed phonation, breathy phonation, and uh, something that he called neutral, which is just another measuring point, if you like. If you think about sustaining sounds or sustaining a whole song in one of those phonation modes, it's obviously going to be a different breath use from one of the others. So say breathy phonation mm -hmm. compared with pressed phonation would mm -hmm. be different. Mm -hmm. And then flow phonation would be different than breathy. Mm -hmm. So why would you use the same approach in terms of breathing and how you manage particularly your airflow out or the amount of air that you take in why would you use exactly the same approach all the time you might use exactly the same approach if you believed that you were making exactly the same sound across your entire range all the time that there's a belief that gets in the way do you think it's that it's part of this thing that it's the vocal folds that control the breath? Okay, I want to go here because, um, I mean, people who know us will know that we have an Estill background. And in the Estill model, uh, breathing was de-emphasised, and that was Joe's own words, uh, and actually de-emphasised really to the point where it wasn't taught at all. Mm. And it was the vocal folds control everything. And phonation is interrupted airflow. Oh, absolutely. So, um, and, and the interesting thing about um, any model like that, uh, and particularly any model that is packaged and sold, is that they are often done in response to what was already in existence. So it's a historical thing. Mm, it's mm. a historical context thing. You know it with vocal process, context is everything. Mm -hmm. And this mm -hmm. is a historical context. Um, jo wasn't the first, but she was one of the first people to put together a, a system that really wanted to debunk what she felt was the classical singer's monopoly on it's all about the breath. And relaxation. And, and relaxation, and you just let it go, and really all you have to do is get out of the way and your voice will appear. Yes, yes. And so you think about the breathing and you think about the resonance, but darling, you must never, never feel anything in the larynx. That's correct. And that was... I was told that. Right. Well, that was prevalent in that period. Mm. And so therefore, uh, the Estelle model came out of a desire to start debunking some of the myths. And also to apply um, clinical voice knowledge because of the work that she would have done studying um, at Syracuse University, to apply some of that information within um, 
a singing voice context. Mm. And of course, we've all moved on, you know, decades on. Mm. We're much more in conversation with our, our clinical colleagues about this and, and much better informed. And there is a massive body of work, not only Sundberg's work into subglottal pressure, but also uh, all of the work that Thomas Hickson did on breath volumes and breathing kinematics. Mm. And uh, lots of research since then, which has combined sometimes those insights. I mean, Ron Morris's um, PhD and then the lovely book, um, If in Doubt, Breathe Out, mm -hmm. which unpacks, you know, some of the science in a user-friendly way. So, you know, we, we do know that it's not a one-size-fits-all system. I think the other thing is, if you're looking at, at um, a, a, a layout, if you like, a physical layout that says there's breath and there's vocal fold vibration and there's resonance, mm. you cannot miss one of those out of the equation. If you're going to teach it, you've got to teach that all three. You've got to teach all three and how they interact. You can't just pretend that one doesn't exist or is not important. Well, if you've got these three parts of the system, they're always going to be interacting. Totally. Totally, yeah. So um, that, so there, there, for example, is a model that says it's all controlled by the vocal folds. Uh, there are other models that, exactly as Gillianne said, that says it's all about the breath and you don't need to worry at all about what's going on in your throat. Mm -hmm. And the answer is context, mm -hmm. again, mm -hmm. which is what is the task that you want to do? If the task that you want to do, you are already set up for, if you are completely used to singing I don't know, um, Brahms leader. If you're completely used to singing Brahms leader, then it will feel totally natural to you that you have taken these positions and breath uses and sound systems and resonance shapes. That will feel completely natural to you like you are not doing anything. Mm. The difficulty is when you then want to change what you do. So I've had people come to me. I had one singer a few a um, couple of years ago, who was a working Wagner soprano who wanted a belt. Mm. And it was really fascinating working out what part of her classical technique could be used and what couldn't, because it was overloading the system. And mm. we had to focus on breath, and we had to focus on resonance, and we had to focus on changing what she was doing to a different balance. And this is where context comes mm. in. Mm. You can... If, you, if you're com quite comfortable doing what, you, what you're doing, you can carry on doing that for the rest of your life. Although, obviously, there are physical changes as you get older. But if you want to change anything or if you want to teach somebody, if you want to teach somebody else to do what you do, you're not in their body, so you don't know what their patterns are. And there are habitual things that you don't even realise are habitual. So you do them and then you go, why doesn't that work? Oh, it must be the vocal folds. Well, actually, no. It's the fact that you are not providing enough airflow or enough um, subglottal pressure to be able to change the task to something else. And that's the issue that I have, mm. is if you are, if as a performer, you do whatever you need to do to get on stage and perform, because that is a risky business. But if you're a teacher, the one person you're not working with is you, mm. your own voice. Mm. You are always working with other people, and therefore you need to have a battery of knowledge in all of these areas to find out what you have that can help them and also to be able to analyse what they're doing. Uh, you may have guessed, I feel quite strongly about this. I think you need a battery of knowledge in all the areas. Mm, absolutely. I wonder if we should call that a wrap now, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> yeah, OK. Hopefully not a rant. No, it's not a rant, not at all. Um, yeah, I think, have we have we reached a moment? I think we have reached a moment. We've reached a moment. Yes. Excellent. If that you, was fun, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. If you have any more questions about breath and breathing, then um, we'll do a part three. If not, then we'll move on to a different topic. Yeah. Uh, and any sort of pedagogical information to share, particularly about inhalare la voce, what yes. other people's experiences are. Yes. Um, any speech therapists or, or breath and body workers listening to this who've got comments about uh, what we've said about mouth versus nose breathing. We would love to hear that. Mm. Um, and yes, it's a very, very hot topic at the moment for 
all kinds of reasons, isn't it? And uh, we're just going to flag a couple of things that already exist in our store. Um, the Learning Lounge uh, has various resources on uh, breath and breathing, breath use in different genres, all sorts of things. We have masterclasses that we do. So troubleshooting breath and uh, breath awareness. Um, we have lesson plans on that. Uh, go and check that out. We'll put the link in the description. Anything to do with SOVT is also going to be super useful for understanding about about the breathing system. Yes, yeah. and we're flagging the SOVT2 course. In fact, um, if you haven't seen our SOVT1 course already, uh, then please, uh, we'll put the link in the description. Please go and check it out. It mm. is, uh, SOVT1 is streaming online, so instantly available. You can watch it now. It's half term. Go A- and do it. Absolutely. We have had some phenomenal feedback from that course. And SOVT1, which you can watch anytime online, is the entry level into SOVT2, which is the live one with me, Gillian and Oren Boda, who's the creator of the SOVT Singer Straw. And that's coming up in November. We'll put the dates on that as well. Um, and we just want to mention the This Is A Voice book, because This Is A Voice uh, has a, quite a lot of exercises on breath, intonation, breath in singing, breath in different singing styles. And exercises for the tongue. Yeah. Yeah. And also for the soft palate, for those of you who need it. And a quick shout out to Feeny Cave and the Musical Breath website. Mm. This is a voice is one of the recommended uh, books for her um, Musical Breath website. Um, some excellent articles and resources on her site, blogs, all sorts of things. Absolutely. And I'm just going to mention Anne Coxhead uh, Osteopathic Services again, and we'll put a link to her website to anybody who's um, interested in finding out more about her work. Yep. So um, we are done and breathe. This is a voice a podcast with Dr. Gillian Kays and Jeremy Fisher.